Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. People who work in some of the most largest media tech and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Today, I'm joined by Chris Brinkworth and Vishal Repaka from Civic Data. In Australia, Civic Data is helping leading brands to collect, organize, analyze, and activate data from a privacy-first perspective for marketing and communications initiatives. Civic Data works with current and future Australian privacy principles, really helps enable, enable companies think about a web that is going to become more and more private. Now, Chris has spent years working in what I call the bowels of ad tech in the US, has seen sort of the rise and fall of many ad tech companies in his time. And over his career, he's seen an increasing need to address privacy concerns as these technology companies have introduced issues and concerns into the economy from a privacy data collection front, but also online tracking and, and how companies actually do that. So he went on to found Civic Data with his business partner, Jason Fonseca. Now, uh, Vishal also works at Civic Data. He's a principal there who specializes in working with mostly ASX 100 listed brands and high growth product businesses. So today, as you guessed it, we are talking about what I call the privacy winter and all the things that, things that make up an ever-emerging private web. And so now I give you Chris and Vishal. How are you doing? Oh, good. Very, very, very excited to finally be on one of these. This is brilliant. Yeah, thank you, Juan. It's uh, it's awesome to go from being a, a listener to to a participant in the podcast. So, uh, thank you very much for having us on board. Can't wait to uh, can't wait to chat today. It's great to have you. And and uh, we we just had our, our briefing call, and uh, we I think we could probably keep going and going and going. And so, um, I've been waiting a long time to have this specific discussion about privacy and the role in privacy in um, in the MarTech space. And uh, I can't think of anyone that's building solutions that's working directly with customers that is thinking about this um, this topic as much as both of you. So thank you so much for joining. Now, uh, I want to start with an introduction. Now, Chris, can you take us on a bit of a journey on how you founded Civic Data with your business partner? What did that look like and how, what's those steps been? Yeah, no, no problem. So it's, it, I'd love to say it was simple, but it wasn't. Uh, so I'd gone through a phase of looking at starting a business about three, three and a half years ago, three, three and a half years ago. Um, and I was looking into where the market was heading, what people were focused on, you know, the, the usual, usual stuff when you're building out a business plan, do you actually have a solution that solves the problems people, people have now or may have in the future? And given my background, uh, having spent seven years here with an ASX listed media buying agency, and, and then I went across to the US and as mentioned before, I, I worked in the bowels, as you say, of the ad tech industry for, for six or seven years in New York. I was very lucky to have met some super smart people who built a business that they sold to Google or they built a business that they sold to Salesforce or they built a business that they sold to Adobe. Uh, and I also met a lot of people who built businesses that sat within tag management systems, collected data, put cookies on people. So I went out and I spoke to each one of those people uh, across Europe and the US, and I've still still remained very, very close friends with actually with, within that industry. 
and I asked him, where are you focused? And, and the answer came squarely back on, we're focused on either ESG, carbon footprint, et cetera, or we're focused on privacy. So that gave me this concept of looking into privacy and how that impacts MarTech and measurement specifically. Uh, now, I was also very lucky at the time to have worked with Jason previously. And, and strangely enough, I'd, I'd met Vish several times previously as well. So Jason Fonseca came on the journey with me. Um, and, and I think Vish will talk about the fact that he's, he's, he, he's clearly a co-founder in the business because without Vish's help over the past year, because remember, we're only 13 years old, 13 months old, uh, we wouldn't be the business we are today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I think there's, there's this interesting emergence of more companies and consultancies working in that privacy space, because I think there's, as we're going to unpack today on this episode, we're going to start really digging into what are those things that are happening in the privacy landscape? Why is it becoming more of an important topic across the enterprise as well? So, but Vishal, can you give us your story? How did you join Civic Data? I mean, uh, you mentioned that you wrote a, a few twists and turns in there, but what's your story? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share. So for me, the th thing about me is that I, I'm a sort of a full stack engineer um, first, and I, I, I fell into the world of analytics and marketing almost by accident. I, I joined what I actually thought was sort of a web development agency a few years ago um, and later realized, oh, it's actually not a web development agency. They're, they're an analytics, martech, personalization agency, you know, here in Sydney, Australia. Um, and, you know, su super interesting space for me, you know, it was quite some years ago and I was like, oh, this is awesome, right? Because uh, a big reason that I'd sort of moved away from traditional full stack engineering into, into this more of sort of a consulting agency style role was actually I wanted to be close to the out outcome of a problem. But for me, I was like, I want to be at the, that intersect between, between the business and the customer and the product. And, and help make a change there. I, I thought, you know, my skills are best suited there. You know, how can I bring technology to the forefront of people that are trying to make decisions and make outcomes and not necessarily sort of be entirely behind the code base, if that makes sense. In many ways, my journey, my career journey since then has effectively been, you know, I, I've been chasing, I've been chasing the dragon where the dragon in this case, where can I drive value? You know, where can I really feel like, you know, day in, day out, I'm doing things that are valuable. I'm doing, I'm, I'm actually impacting some sort of change um, and really trying to focus my career in and around that. So with, with all that being said, so, you know, I, I, I've jumped around and been at a few different places since where, you know, I've been at different agencies, you know, at a, at a you know, sort of small niche boutique level. I've done it at like an enterprise holding level. I've done it, you know, with the, like the big four agencies, but I've also done it with some of the more traditional uh, technology organizations in the world, but working on the sort of like marketing and advertising side of their business. Like previous to Civic Data, I was at, you know, I was at another organization, had an awesome time sort of seeing them from, you know, their inception out to a successful acquisition and, you know, being able to work in the marketing tech space. But I kind of got to the point where it, it, in some ways where, where the space was headed towards, I, I, I kind of started feeling like, man, am I really doing like anything that is, is truly valuable or are we to an extent, am I just doing things that, you know, should be done air quotes, but you know, the, the being able to put a, a value quantifiable value figure or a quantitative, you know, value figure against it was, uh, I was feeling a bit, you know, uh, iffy about that. So I actually spun out and did my own thing. I was working in sort of a 
quasi venture capital slash running my own agency within a venture capital fund sort of role. And the idea was, you know, you deploy capital and you deploy your agency services alongside your capital to really help explode and grow and scale up these sort of like small to medium sized businesses. And for a while, I thought, you know what, this is what I want to do, right? Like, sweet, like I'm actually making a real change here. But, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, now in hindsight, I'm actually very fortunate, but it, it, it didn't quite work out the way I planned. And basically, I quit my job without anything in mind. And uh, Jason, who's one of the co-founders of, of Civic, who's also a good mate of mine, actually, I just happened to call him and I was like, hey, man, I just I need your advice. I kind of quit my job, but I've got nothing lined up. And he, he said, you know, why don't, why don't you, you know, would you consider coming on board? And, you know, I met Chris and I met Jason. You know, we kind of went through the, you know, the all the initial stages of thinking about bringing me on board and kind of was like, okay, let, let, let's do this. And I was actually still a bit hesitant when, when I first joined this. I actually first joined in, in, in on a part-time basis while I was still trying to fig- figure out if there was a different industry, a different part that I want to, wanted to go down because I, was fe- I, I didn't want to have this feeling of not really driving a true impact from the work that I'm doing. But and I was feeling a bit iffy about where the industry was headed towards at the time. But the and the crazy thing is, you know, three, four months into joining the business, originally I said, hey, give me six months before I decide whether or not I want to be full-time here and whether I want to be on the in the in the long run. It actually took less than three, four months, I think, for me to go, guys, I'm in. This is awesome. Like I love this. This is actually one of the best possible opportunities that you know I can take as a person. One of my best and biggest challenges that I can take on to go, hey, you know, we've got a point of view on how to make a real impact in this industry and it's the right time to do it. I went full in. I told the guys I'm full time, I'm all in. And it's just been an awesome adventure since then. And, you know, fortunately, Jason and Chris and, you know, sort of our board and our leadership have actually since brought me on, you know, not just as a full-time employee and founding, you know, founding employee of the company, but actually I've become a co-founder of the business since as well. I love every part of it. There's no day that I don't go to sleep excited about the next morning. And there's no morning that I don't wake up thinking about what cool stuff we get to get to do today. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. There's so much we can think about in terms of that meaning and purpose aspect of work. And, you know, we're now, what, at least 30 years into the modern web. And a lot of people are thinking similar things. It's like, how do I make an impact? How do I genuinely help people in this industry? So yeah, it's a fantastic story, Vishal. So let's get in our first question. Now, Civic Data has this concept of compliant growth. Now, <clears throat> uh, Civic Data uses that concept quite a lot in how you talk about your work. But what is that? Chris, can you give us an overview? Yeah, it, it's it's. I'd love to take all the credit, but like I said before, it took a while to to hit on this this concept for the business. And I was bouncing back some ideas with with a friend of mine who who used to work at Westpac. He's he's over now at Aware Super, Nick Barnett. And and the term compliant growth, a lot of that credit goes towards him, to to be honest as well. And and the concept is very much around the the fact that in today's world where you've got a patchwork of regulations around the world, a patchwork in, in the US, you've got GDPR, you've got the updates coming here from an Australian privacy principles perspective. The pressures that that is putting onto businesses that include Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Apple, but also businesses here, including ourselves, including financial institutions here, around the compliance of, of how they do business. Um, the term compliance growth really sits squarely there. How can you grow your revenue? How can you grow your sales? How can you grow your business? 
but do it now in, in, in a world which is actually compliant with all the shifting tech that goes with that as well. So, so that's really where the term compliant growth comes from. Yeah, so to my understanding of compliant growth is that every company needs to grow. That's the main imperative. And as you mentioned before, Chris, a lot of your work is in measurement, analytics, and working adjacently to marketing technologies. And a lot of those technologies are there to help companies grow. But compliant growth puts this interesting wrapper around it to say, well, how are you doing that responsibly? How are you doing that in a way that plans for the long-term future, but also what does that look like in terms of uh, interacting with the wider economy and all of the different shifting sands of privacy, which is, I think, one of the major uh, challenges right now for a lot of leaders in, in our space is just figuring out what's going on. But that leads me to our next question. And Vishal, can you give us some broad strokes on what is actually happening in the data privacy space across the industry? What are the main themes and the market movements that are important to you, important to track right now? And how are you understanding all the moving pieces? Yeah, nah, look, awesome question. Loads happening. I think uh, I often find myself sort of reciting the same couple of things to really help summarize the, the, the key points of it, right? So at a, at a global macro level, and you know, to be fair, it's actually relevant either at a macro level or a domestic level. It just depends on a few tiny factors. But you know, at a global level, here's what we're saying, right? Firstly, you have this sort of regulatory change, legislation change happening in various provinces in the world, right? You've got you know, GDPR, which in many ways sort of kicked it all off. You've got CCPA, CCPR out in the States. You've got like POPIA and South Africa and, you know, similar legislation all across the world, right? What is all of this doing? You know, it's, 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 it's providing a, a regulatory framework against how data must be, you know, interpreted, processed, controlled, consented to and you know in what ways needs to be compliant from a from a user privacy perspective right the digital world has really accelerated things in many ways and, and you know, has a lot of benefits but at the same time i think legislation didn't necessarily keep up and it was playing sort of a chase up game there so that's the first one right you've got regulatory change the second thing that you're seeing and it goes in hand with the regulatory change but it's you know you're seeing the increased tightening of protections um, existing at a device and a browser level. So what I mean by a device and a browser level, right? So we're talking about um, Apple app tracking transparency, right? The enforcement of that and saying, okay, if you've got an app, you need to declare everything that you're tracking um, that you're collecting on the user. You know, that needs to be super visible to the user. And the user, and you know, if you are tracking and you're going to use that data in other places, or you're going to use it for remarketing purposes and you know, other, you know, third parties, things like that the user actually needs to opt into the tracking. And if they don't opt in, then you can't do any of that. And you know, that has many ramifications. Similarly, you've got Safari ITP, which in, in, in some ways kind of kicked this all off in, in our world, right? The With the whole, you know, death of the cookie or the cookie apocalypse idea, which is like, okay, third-party cookies are going away. This is being core to our supply chain. You know, that's going to change a lot of things. Now you've got also like say Google with the Google privacy sandbox, which is now being extended to Android, right? Google privacy sandbox across web and also Android, also limiting the way that you can use IDs and where you can use data and like what is the consent and the compliance attached to all of that. So you've got this device and browser level protection that's come out. The third thing that you've got is you've got this formation of, of data walled garden um, is what we call it, right? So you've got uh, Google, you've got Facebook, 
you've got Amazon and now as well, Apple, right? Even with, you know, we can see that even with the latest news with Apple creating their own DSP, right? You've got big tech creating their own walled garden ecosystems around data that really limit the, the what you can get out of it from a data interoperability perspective as, as a brand. But it's also a black hole. It's almost like the, the, the increasing feeling is like, yeah, go throw all your data into this and, you know, we will provide you value, but we're not necessarily going to give you the, the you know, the, the micro data points, the micro, micro pieces that we, you know, we might've gotten in a previous world that, that, that really had a through two way value exchange in a way. Now it's more like throw it into our supply chain and we'll give you value, but it's, it's, it's almost like a data IP handoff, which, you know, has significant ramifications. And then the fourth underlying factor here that we're seeing is we're seeing this idea of you know, like consumer sentiment in and around privacy is changing as well, right? People have increasingly an expectation and even if not expectation, an awareness of, hey, like my data is being used in all these crazy ways and my data, what's the security around it? And, you know, if I want my data back from you as a business, can I get that, right? And really, I think uh, that really stemmed from the Cambridge Analytica news that happened a couple of years ago. And if you trace back from there, that, that, that's really where I think consumer privacy awareness, consumer data, sovereignty awareness really kicked things off. So you've got, you've got this, you know, four large global, you know, macro factors that I think are core to what's impacting the industry. That stands true kind of effectively, irrespective of where you are. I think the fifth thing worth mentioning and potentially not mentioned enough, but it's also, there's this sort of antitrust movement occurring as well against big tech especially in sort of Europe and America, that, that's worth keeping an eye on as well. Because I think, you know, the impact of that on big tech, on, you know, effectively who, who've controlled where the dollars have gone to date in our ecosystem, the impact of that is going to have significant consequence to, to, to the future of the industry. So yeah, th those are the factors. That's what I'm seeing happening. If we if we kind of take that lower at, a, at an Australia level, and I, I know we're going to talk about this a bit further later, but you know, even Australia is getting our version of a, of a GDPR-like regulation sometime in, in the very near future. So you know, we're, we're going to have to respond, to respond to that here. But fortunately, we have the opportunity to learn from markets across the world who've already had to respond to this. We get to see the movements and the, the playbooks that did work out. We get to see where they didn't work out. We get to see what you know, tools, technology, strategies, and processes that help you not just be compliant in this privacy-first ecosystem, but actually be competitive, build competitive advantage, and get ahead, get ahead of your competitors, get ahead of the market, um, and really build a brand for the future and not for the past. Do you think the Cambridge Analytica situation that happened back in 2017 and 2018, do you think that was our watershed moment for ad tech? Ah, I, I think so. But I, I really do think so. We, 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 we were always headed towards this, as history teaches us from the past. Like, you know, it's almost like you, you build up the, the, the boiler room, right? And it's moving towards and You have this one moment that cracks it all open. I do think Cambridge Analytica very much so represents that. Um, and even if we, if we trace it back to like the US Parliament hearing that happened after that, it, it, you know, it, it, it all culminates from there, I think. Mm -hmm. so, I, I, I'd agree, ahead. but I would also add, I think 
it's a lot to do with the data brokers that survived after that as well. Mm. So, so I, I think there's, yes, Cambridge Analytica got caught, but the fact that there are many other people that, that were profiting off of data that could be scraped, taken, um, and, and all because of the fact people hadn't been careful about what's happening with user data and exposing it to the public as well. Mm. So I think that there, there, it's not just, I, I, I'm not supporting what Cambridge Analytica did, but I, I would say there's, a, there's an entire legacy that still happened after that, which is mm. now being kind of sewn up. Mm. And I mean, it's, there's this, there's, so we had GDPR that happened um, late last decade. And then we have Cambridge Analytica. And then we have all of these, as you say, all these ad tech vendors, there's increasing fines. I mean, even just last week in TMW91, I was talking about how Critio got fined tens of millions of dollars because of their GDPR lack of compliance or their way, uh, ways of skirting around that. And I'm just seeing that in the headlines more and more. But I think when it comes to media cycles, uh, I think right up until probably 2015, uh, ad, ad tech was seen as the enabler for the free and open web. I mean, it built companies like Facebook, like Google. They don't exist without tracking, without targeted advertising. And that whole economy has opened up the web to millions of people. Now, that was a narrative probably from 2000 right through to 2015. But then in the later half of last decade, we've started to have a, a major shift in how media talks about the ad tech industry. It's increasingly feeling like, and I'm talking to younger people, feeling like it's a bit dirty to work in ad tech. It's kind of like <laughs> that, that perspective. And this is, I think a lot of this is driven by media cycles, but also, you know, there's like, they've got things to talk about. I mean, there's more companies being fine than ever. Um, but there's this idea that, you know, say 50, 60 years ago, or even a little bit later, you worked, say, in big tobacco, or you worked, say, in, I don't know, you worked in a coal power plant. That's fine, right? Like, we're building industry here. But then, as the narrative changed, those industries are seen were seen increasingly as dirty industries, right? You wouldn't be super proud to be working in tobacco unless you're in a specific community that values that, those types of products. And so I, I find that really interesting about the narrative that sort of the, that overlays all of what's happening. And of course, it increases how or it changes how consumers think about the role of their own data collection online, but also how tech companies are making changes. Like, as you mentioned, Michelle, ATT with Apple, Google deprecating cookies, but then also GDPR and then CCPA in California as well. All of these things have this undertone of we can't trust ad tech vendors anymore. <laughs> and I think that is a really fascinating aspect in this. And, and I don't think we do ad tech vendors a good service there either, because as I mentioned, they've played an instrumental role in, in helping to really empower the open web as we have it today. And I think that's quite important. But let's zoom in a little bit because, Chris, you've been working in the Australian economy for quite some time in this space. But can you help our audience sort of unpack what is the Australian government actually doing about privacy right now? What do you see coming? And what are the things that they're not thinking or doing right now that they probably should be? Yeah, look, I think just just to go take a step back a bit, because it, it works well for a segue of what your, your, your question is there. I think in, in Critea's defence, they've not yet been fined and, and they've, they're going to contest it. They're the ones that actually came out and disclosed that this is happening. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight when you actually go and, and, and look at the, the, the notice that they put forward. But 
they're basically testing their version of compliance versus what GDPR is saying from a European perspective as well. So it, it won't actually happen until mid-2023 that they, if they actually get a fine. So they've not been fined yet. And no one really knows the, the true story behind it just yet. But that that in itself is a really good example of why people in Australia need to be very focused on, on what is compliant and what is not. So if you were to look at the market as it stands, and, and look, I've spent a, a good amount of time understanding Australian privacy principles existing and what may happen. Civic Data have put forward a submission paper, which you can find on the Attorney General's website about our thoughts towards the draft proposal and changes to the Australian Privacy Act. But the, the, the current, what, what you have in Australia is something called the Australian Privacy Principles. Now, those govern the standards, the rights, the obligations around how data is collected, how it's used and how it's disclosed. So even at the moment, certain companies may well be breaking some of those particular principles even before changes. So, so it's well worth just kind of getting understanding of what those basic Australian privacy principles are, even before you go out to try and understand what's going to happen with the next set of changes. Now, those changes may well come sooner than a lot of people are expecting. So, so Mark Dreyfus, who's the, the new Labour-based Attorney General, mentioned at a conference just over a week and a half ago that he's he's expecting that by the end of this year, there will be, in calendar year, there, there will be a draft, a final draft of what this new privacy regime looks like in Australia. Now, if you were to go look at the discussion paper that was put forward about what those changes would be, it, it's starting to talk about how the, the technical terms of what is concerning, sorry, what we would call data and what we would call personally identifiable information or PI, sorry, and technical data, that's going to expand out. So coming back to that point where I was, I was presented to a bunch of lawyers, I, I presented to, to 20 lawyers actually in a law firm quite recently. And I asked everyone to put their hand up and I said, put your hands up if you've studied law. And everyone put their hand up apart from myself. And then I said, okay, hands up if you understand MarTech or RadTech, and no one actually did. And, and that's the challenge I think that, that we're going to see is a lot of in-house legal counsel or compliance officers, they may understand the law itself, but they don't actually stand, understand how RadTech or MarTech works. And vice versa, a lot of marketing people and marketing agencies are out there collecting data, storing data, trying to understand what's happening with consent, but they don't actually understand the letter of the law. And given the law itself is changing at the moment, how can you stay abreast of that? So from a key reform, what we know and what we don't know at the moment is we know there will be a new term, a new definition of what personal information means. And we know that the scope of data regulated will change, but we don't exactly know what those terms will be. So will IP address be in there as a technical term? Will you be allowed to use IP uh, for identifying people, we you be allowed to store it. If you also look at a device, when you look at the current Australian privacy principles, what we had as a phone just sat in the corner of the house. But, but today, your, your, your actual mobile phone, no one ever wants to share their mobile phone with someone. If, you, if someone asks you in the street, can I look at your mobile phone? It's such a personal thing. Obviously, that should be covered under, under something that's PII. So, so all of these things are changing, but we're not quite sure yet what will actually change. So it's worth just having a think and look again, go read our, our draft response as well. So our submission to, to the Attorney General, what we think should be included. But anything that can help to identify someone will definitely be within that technical terms. 
there's also a change in regards to what we're, what we're disclosing as businesses and how we're going to use that data from a consumer perspective. So is it fair and reasonable that we're collecting data? So, so Juan and, and Vish, you, you guys obviously would have heard of fingerprinting as one example that's being used at the moment to replace cookies. Now, fingerprinting is, is it's a term that's used to, it's a term that's used when you're aggregating various levels of, of, of input from, let's say, battery or browser type or your character set on your keyboard, your Bluetooth connection. So all of these different elements that start to, to create a jigsaw puzzle that says, this looks like this particular person here or this particular device here. Now, when you, when you look at what's fair and reasonable, an example that I use quite often is, is it fair when you're collecting data about a user's, a user's device as an app, is it fair to say, I would like to use and, and store your battery level if you're a weather app? Probably not. But if you're a blood sugar diabetes app based app that's connected to a device, which is, which is a wearable device that, that's taking your blood sugar levels, then you know what? you probably do need to collect that battery information because then you can actually ensure that there's a notification sent saying your battery's about to die. So, so that fair and reasonable usage is something that's going to come under real core scrutiny as well. So you need to be sure that if you're collecting data and storing data, is it actually fair? you're going to actually have to now make a new notice on the requirement when it comes to third-party collections of data as well. So everyone's aware that everyone's building out first-party strategies at the moment when it comes to first-party data strategies when it comes to collecting data. But as a marketer, you're going to have to collect that directly. And if you're not collecting it directly for consumers, if you are going to go out and buy it from someone, you've actually got to ensure that it's being collected fairly, it's been collected lawfully, and all the permissions and consent have been attained. And that's where we come to this whole, whole concept of helping publishers with their, their consent and their consent orchestration and so on. So, so look, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's plenty of other experts out there that you should definitely go out and research in Australia. And they put forward blog posts about this. But our advice would definitely be in regards to these kind of key reforms that are impacting the MarTech industry, just go out and look at the various submissions that people have made to the Attorney General. It's very easy to search for them. And look at what people have put forward as suggestions as what should be technical terms, what should not be technical terms, et cetera. But coming back to the timeline, Mark Dreyfus said that the draft will, will, will happen by the end of this year. And then it's been suggested where well, he stated that it will definitely be a new, a new act and it will be passed into law by the end of his first term. And given that this may well be a short political term, we're probably seeing that it will be about two and a half years from now that that act will be passed is what we're expecting. I hope that was I hope that was a good enough kind of overview for you. It gives I think it gives us a good snapshot of the considerations mm. right now. And it's and it adds to this idea that we're heading towards a regulated internet in a lot of ways. I mean, data fuels the web. We already have regulation in terms of content moderation for, say, insurance companies or investment businesses or banks. They have regulation on what kind of content they can actually send to their customers. We're seeing increasing scrutiny on yeah, content moderation for social media networks. And then the last pillar in the in the web is that is data and how data is used, processed, stored, sold, bought, collected, consented to. All of those things are becoming more of a, a, a key talking point when it comes to regulating the web. And so I think that's very helpful to just get a snapshot of where the legislation is going 
and what are some of the considerations we might need to make? I mean, I've, I've got a few stories from a war stories from a few colleagues in Europe who they were making millions when GDPR went into, into market because so many brands were caught unaware. And then all of a sudden they had to sort of realign all of their data systems, their consent systems, everything. And some of the consultants that caught GDPR early and, and really got, got dug into it, they, they made a, quite a bit just in that particular space when in that sort of first six months of rolling out GDPR. So, you know, there's, there's I think a lot of brands will probably be caught unaware when these things happen, as you say, Chris, over the next two to three years, which means that it's a great industry to be investing into in terms of your career as well. Well, I think there's also another, another way to look at that. And sorry, is if you were to consider that there's... A, if you look at our client base, everyone is focused on getting themselves prepared for a, a web where cookies no longer work, where you need to understand how data clean rooms work so you can start to plan based on cohorts and target based on cohorts, et cetera. And, and our clients, given that we're a year old, our, our clients are now a year ahead of anyone else that, 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 that is starting to think about this now. So, so let's let's fast forward to two and a half years time, or even let's just fast forward to yeah, a year and a half from when Cookie, sorry, Google cancels out their cookies. You're going to find that there are agencies and advertisers who want to go out and spend their advertising budget or their marketing budget in areas where they know it's compliant, in areas that they can actually see the effectiveness of how it's working. And a great example would be Facebook. If you look at the decline in, in spend on, on app downloads, so the money that was spent previously on Facebook before, before Apple shut down the data from, from iOS visibility to, to what it is now, that's a really good example. Everyone stopped spending on Facebook and then they went and spent it on the app search functionality of Apple's own business. And the same will, the same will happen here as well. If you, if, you, if you look at that, a lot of people start to go, where can I spend my money where I know it's going to be working? And it's compliant. Well, they're going to go spend it with those companies who are actually prepared. So, so, so it's very much an opportunity, like you say, for, for businesses to go out there and, and put themselves in a position where they say, look, here's what we've done. Here's how we've transformed our business. And here's why you should spend our money, your money with us. Now, counter to that, if you're a business that doesn't go and get yourself prepared, you're going to have a, a double challenge where you're having money removed from you and you're now in a position where you've got to go spend money to catch up and you've got to start to re-architect all your systems at the same time. And that's going to be such a bottleneck to do that. So yeah, I, I, sorry to jump in there, but I think that's a really important thing to understand. Not just, not just agencies and, and, and specialists in the MarTech and ad tech field will be able to make money in this space. But if you're an advertiser or if you're, you're a publisher or an agency and you're focused on this now, you're going to be put yourself in a really good position to, to, to help other businesses in the future and then grow your business from it. And, and that's what it all comes back to on that compliant growth side. Well, it, it, you can unpack compliant growth, I think, in two ways, which is quite interesting. There's growing with compliance, so doing it responsibly, and then there's leveraging compliance to grow. I mean, it depends on what kind of business you're in, but compliance is becoming, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, a greater opportunity and and it's a great way to fuel new startups and innovation. I, I recently did a piece on the third wave which for TMW, which was talking about the next iteration of marketing technology startups. We've been on a pretty sharp decline of new startups coming into the MarTech space. 
And one of those points is like companies like Plausible and other startups, Plausible is a analytics platform that is uh, quote unquote, helping to de-Google the web. So helping co companies remove Google analytics from their web stack. And they've offered a, what they call as a, a cookie, a cookie-less web analytics package solution for companies to pick up and they charge a fee for that. But they've grown in about 24 months, they've gone to 1 million ARR without any outside investment, completely bootstrapped. And um, I look at that and I think, well, yeah, there's all of these really interesting startup opportunities coming out of this compliance and privacy space as we sort of go into what I call the third wave, the next iteration of MarTech innovation. Uh, but I, I think you're right. There's a lot um, that can be done in this space and there's plenty of work that we can do. Um, Vishal, Chris, time check. Um, we're just about five minutes left. Want to cover the last mm -hmm. two questions. Are you okay to keep going till about 10 past? Can do. Can do. Awesome. Thank you. Chris, how about you? Look, I, I, I do all day. I've been waiting so long to be on this podcast with you. I'll do all day for you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. Awesome. Okay. Now we've talked a little bit about the the sort of environment. We've talked about broad strokes, the industry, what government regulation and legislation is doing. But when it comes to sitting down with your customers and helping them na navigate consumer privacy, what are some of the sticking points that you're, you're seeing as brands work towards greater compliance? Where are the issues? What are the challenges? And what, what are the points that it seems difficult to resolve as you're seeing it right now? Look, I, I, I think, I, I, we, like I mentioned earlier on, we're 13 months old now. Uh, and we had our end of financial year just, just gone. And we, we, were, we were obviously talking to the board about what's happening this year. And, and we're explaining you know, where we've seen successes, where we've seen challenges. And, and one of the key things, it's, it's an analogy everyone knows it, it, that we're doing here is we're, we're, building, we're building the airplane while flying it. So we're, we're trying to build service lines for a market that doesn't quite understand that they need to be focusing on this particular problem. We're building awareness and educating the market as well. Like a, a great example is being part of your podcast here. We have to learn and understand everything about these new technologies that are coming out of the US and out of Europe that you just mentioned as well. We need to understand if that product will still be there from a vendor selection process. If we recommend a vendor to a client and it's no longer there in two months time, then that's mud on our face as well. So that's, that's one part. The other part is obviously the, the people that we're talking to within a business trying to educate those, those clients and those stakeholders about what we're doing and why they need to do it. Because this isn't just something which the media buyer or, or, or a marketing associate, associate can do. This is literally, it's not like a media spend where you can throw 10,000, 20,000, $30,000 of test spend to see if it works or not. What we're doing is getting into the guts of a business's internal systems, the data, the lifeblood of their business, and how things are tracked. And, and if we make a mistake, there's, there's no going back from that from a reputation perspective for us or the client. So you have to be very sure about what you're doing. So I would say from a, the challenges we're seeing, you've got to get across the, the entire, entire business, a selection from CIO to CTO to, to head of data governance, to compliance officer, to marketing director. This is now a C-level conversation. And, and, and I think it's no, it's no mistake that our clients that we've got are ASX listed, well, ASX 100, ASX 200 listed businesses and, and global FTSE listed businesses because of the fact that the executives at a business that size understand what happens if there's a data leak.
They understand the fines involved. They understand what it means to a reputational perspective as well. They understand that if they're spending tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on, on sales and marketing initiatives, that if there's no way to measure it properly, then it's a very big waste as well. So I would say that they're, they're the challenges I'm seeing. I hope that was a kind of good enough quick overview. I don't know if there's anything else that Vish could add. Yes, right. In terms of ticking points, I, I think about it two ways, right? I think about it from a challenge perspective, and I think about it from like who's responding today rather than the day that legislation's announced, right? I think that, that that's quite important to consider when you think about that question. What are the sticking points? Well, I'd argue like, does it? How much does it matter what the sticking points are versus how much does it matter that there's an imperative to act today? And what I mean by that is, you know, right now the you know the vast majority of the type of clients that we're we're finding that you know would like to partner with us today and you know sort of go through the journey with us today, well ahead of any formal legislation draft is you know there's three types of companies one is companies who who are fundamentally impacted by by privacy and all the other global factors global macro factors and trends in and around privacy those are your companies who publishes media companies to an extent um so on and so forth a second type of company you know we're seeing really want to partner with us today is is organizations who are currently considering some form of transformation within their data and tech ecosystem, but really want to ensure that, that that's future-proofed and, you know, recognize that one of the largest challenges to that future-proofing is, is you know, what the impact of privacy will be today. So you're talking about companies who might be considering, say, a, a customer data platform or CDP, right? PDP-like alternatives, you know, your reverse ETL or activation systems. And then the third type of company we're finding that that have an interest to partner with us today are your product first, tech first, high growth organizations, right? In Australia, examples of companies like that, your Canvas and your Zeros and your you know safety cultures of the world, who sort of by default as, as, as a business practice, want to stay ahead of the game and be leaders rather than followers. You're seeing these three type of organizations want to want to respond today. Uh, why? Because they understand fundamentally this, this this impacts the bottom line and impacts the way of operating the business. Two, they recognize that it's not sort of a, uh, just like, a, you know, privacy is not just a bandage that you apply and go, yeah, cool, I've done privacy. It's not a one-time event, right? It's 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 a continual process that you know, fundamentally impacts the way that you operate your business. So they understand that you know, it's not just about getting your consent and com- your system consent form compliant, but it's about how you then become competitive um, in that privacy first world. And they recognize the, the opportunity that exists today, which is that until the point that a full on privacy legislation has, has come into effect here in Australia, they have a experiment and ro- experimentation roadmap almost, right? To try and get things right, to try and work out, you know, how they'll be impacted, try and work out what, you know, techniques, tools, processes, strategies are going to enable them to be competitive in this world um, and how to fundamentally change the way that they, they operate. Um, so, yeah, sorry, go on. I, I can't recall how many times uh, I, I've talked to somebody who works enterprise business and they complain about data silos. It's one of the biggest issues I find with the enterprise is that there's data living in many pockets. To quote mm-hmm. one customer I recently worked with, they said, we don't have a CRM. We have six CRMs. 
And because we've build, been building solutions and trying to grow our company, we've been taking a very scattershot view on how we collect data for specific tools and apps, but also specific use cases and, and strategies. And I look at that and I think, well, yeah, I mean, as enterprises get bigger, the silos get bigger and the more removed and separated. It's just one of the realities of working in a large company is that you're working with many people, many teams, and, and the data is often bifurcated across those teams, which makes it very hard to do what you're talking about, which is this sort of transformational shift in how data emp empowers the entire business. But also, how do you protect and make sure that you're compliant with that data as well. It's not just a shot in the dark here. It's not one thing you do and set and forget. It's a massive ongoing iterative shift to how the well, how a company thinks about their data philosophy. And, you know, I think often the, the starting point is even go, well, what is your philosophy? Like, what is the executive's point of view on data privacy and how, it, how data should be used? Often executives don't think about it like that. That's been my perspective anyway. They don't really think about it just yet on how important that it is to their business to get it right. But what are your comments on that? Do you uh, think that's an issue? I would say you've actually hit a, a core use case on the head that everyone should be thinking about right now that, that you can give you his Manchester United example. And I've got, I've, I've got examples as well, but I think if you were to look at everyone in Australia, and I, I keep forgetting, sorry, this is a global podcast and apologies to listeners that aren't in Australia as well, because you've already gone through this from a GDPR perspective and CCPA, et cetera. But, but if, if you were to look at everyone currently in Australia is focused on first party data strategy, everyone's going to build their first party data and actually globally, everyone's doing that. But if you look at your data silos, you were just talking about, let's just say you put a lot of investment in going out and, and creating these incredible value exchanges and getting the correct consent, making sure it's fair and reasonable. But what you're doing is pouring this beautiful, clean data into a silo that is actually dirty and toxic and doesn't have those permissions. And if you don't have the ability to, to sift through that at a granular level to pull out what's clean and what's not, you, you, you're literally kind of pouring pouring this this beautiful clean data into a bucket for hole on hole in it that you've got to throw away so so i think you've hit something very very important there to just focus on right now is if i do have a first party data strategy where i'm going out and creating this this wonderful new set of data that's going to be the savior for my my identity strategy it's going to be the savior for my measurement transformation strategy if you're pouring that into a bucket that you cannot use currently then the whole lot has to be thrown out as well so I think that's, that's, that's one example there of what you were talking about that I think a lot of people listening might, might want to just look and, and have a check about what they're doing. Mm. Yes, it's, it's cleaning house first. I mean, <laughs> I recently did a talk with the marketingops.com community in Seattle, and we talked about how building a foundation of safety for customer data. So if you have a customer that walks into a store, um, you want them to feel safe. That's your main priority. Uh, mm. And then everything else you can build on top of that, but they need to be, customers need to be in a safe environment. And I think it's the same mental model for data and protecting yeah. customer data. And if you don't have a safe environment for your data, if it can be hacked or exposed, or if it, even it can be queried by staff members that probably shouldn't be querying it. I mean, there's been some very funny stories over the past of Facebook querying data sets from like previous people they went on dates for and, you know, sort of hacking their history in terms of what they're engaging with the content. You don't want that. I mean, that is not a foundation of secure data, safe data 
that you can actually build on top of. And so a lot of this is unfortunately, and the bad news is that it's, yeah, yeah you have to spend a bit of time cleaning house. That's that's cost, that's time, and that's sort of diverting away from more growth initiative focuses. But I, I do think that we get, as we move forward, it just makes more sense to get your house in order, get the data house in order and making sure that you're you're addressing the issues of the day. But speaking of the issues of the day, I mean, we've been talking about the current state quite a bit in this conversation. But a question I get from TM subscribers, just to round us up for today, is they often ask me if we're heading towards a more private web, does that mean things like free services like Google search, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all built off ad tech, monetized through advertising and targeted collection of, of data? What does that actually do? I mean, are we heading towards a privacy winter? How does that change the kind of skills I want to build or the kind of companies I've joined and work with? Do you have a specific point of view on that? Uh, Fish, I'm, I'm happy to, to lead if you want on that one. That's yeah, I'm happy. To, yeah, yeah. You, you can kick off. And, uh, so, I'll, so I'll... I, I think from a skills perspective, you're, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. There are a lot of people that need to skill up. Like I mentioned earlier on when I said, put your hand up if you studied law versus if you, if you understand MarTech. Mm. Um, MarTech is an incredibly valuable skill. Um, but you also now need to start to understand two, two key things. Obviously, first, firstly, what you're doing, is it allowable? And secondly, is it socially acceptable as well? Kind of back to what you were just saying about what Meta used to do and, and, and other such. So um, if you're going to go out and create a, a value store or, or a data store on about a consumer or about a customer, they're only going to give you more information if they trust you. And if they understand what you're doing with that data is the right thing as well. And then they're going to trust you more. They'll give you more of their data and so on and so on. And, and you, you, you can really start to see what's working and what's not. So I think as a skill set, the people, yes, keep going with the MarTech skill set, right? You still need it. You still need full stack developers. You'll still need people to understand what cookies are. Cookies aren't going away. But you, you need to understand the rules around that from a social perspective, but also just, just, just looking into the basics of, of kind of law and, and, and what you're talking about. So I've had to go out. I'm no, I'm no lawyer. Right? I didn't even go to university, but I've had to really understand the basics of Australian privacy principles. And one of the things I found find, found out through doing that, you'll, you'll find some agencies are out there and, and, and some, some reps are out there from different vendors saying, hey, own your own data. Now, in Australia, technically, it's not legally possible to own your own data. Mm. It, it, it's actually the only way you can own data is, is through intellectual property. So the database structure of data, as it were. So, so I think there's ways you can skill up and, and Admar, as an example, do some really, really great courses on it for around privacy principles and, and, and regulation. The um, IAPP, they have some great, great courses that you can skill up on as well. And I think if you've got a combination of both, you're, you're going to be well set, to be honest. But it's also a great bridge what we're doing. If you look at what we've been doing from a standard web, web 2.0, versus what we're moving into where everyone talks about the metaverse and web three and, and distributed ledgers and distributed data, et cetera. This is a wonderful bridge into that as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where Vish and I get quite excited and talk about this a lot, isn't it, Vish? We, we talk about how this kind of bridges over to the web three piece. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, like you know, a slightly, not necessarily different take, but you know, like my, my view on that exact question, right? Well, well, what does this mean for the future? And 
in some ways, I'm not afraid to answer this question, but it's definitely going to be funny to look back at this and then five or 10 years on how I answer this. Because sometimes <laughs> I think about, you know, sometimes you look at predictions from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, right? And you go, oh, you read them. And you're like, oh, like, look at all these predictions and how wrong they turned out. And where the world is at today? Yeah. That being said, that being said, like the couple of things that, that I did want to share, like one from a, from a skills perspective, right? You are currently a practitioner here or you're a, in the space or you're, you, you know, you're, you're a young graduate looking to come into the space or, you know, going through a career transition. I actually think this is probably one of the most exciting times to be in this space. And I think it's, it's actually really revitalizing a lot of where the, where the fun and the enjoyment and the, and the cool stuff is in our world. Um, and, and really, because you know, what privacy is doing is it's, it's almost like creating a ubiquitous reset across the world in and out, you know, our supply chain operates. And because of that, it, it, you know, like those who will, and when I say those, I'm talking about brands, but I'm talking about people as well. Like, you know, those who are going to sort of excel looking into this, into the future from a 10 year, 15 year perspective, I do think they're going to be the people who, who really embrace this sort of like experimental mindset when it comes to our space. Think about, you know, new ways to consider how to, how to, you know, change the, the the current inks that, that are used and the current strategies that are you know considered business as usual or, you know our best practice so to speak and really be willing to adopt a different mindset to it and honestly my, my view like the lowest bar of all of that right the lowest bar in, in my thoughts are this right now you go to a website from Europe you get hit with cookie banner the moment you open it up right you get hit with you get hit with a cookie banner more often than not, you're probably going to try and you know, you, you're probably going to hit reject actually, not accept because you know you've just come onto the site, you've got no value exchange with them, and you've just been hit with a cookie banner. It's like okay, cool. Well, I, well, I don't want to be tracked, right? At the same time, though, a great experiment that often like brands to think about is like okay, well, if you're already getting pretty low opt-in rate, why don't you just wait before you ask, put that cookie banner out? Why don't you wait till you've had five interactions with that customer? Or they've made it to a certain page within your funnel, or they've done, uh, you know, they've executed a certain event that you know shows that you've actually given them value first, and then put the cookie banner up, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think like it's thinking like that. It's not necessarily outside the box. It's not you know like super innovative here. You know, I'm not thinking, you know, but at the same time, it's just looking at it a bit differently, and it's being willing to embrace that and thinking about you know, well, a lot of things are changing. There's no necessary best practice. The best practice is what, what's going to work for your customers and your relationship with your customer. So, so adopt that mindset, right? Adopt that mindset and think about how all of these all, all of this comes into play. And for, for me, that, I think it's super exciting. It, that's the bottom line. I think a lot of the things we do today will, will absolutely change in the next 10, 15 years. Um, I think we're going to see an adoption of different types of technologies and sort of like, you know, found, like foundational infrastructure technology, if that makes sense. So... Web 2 to Web 3 is a great example, right? Yes, there's a crypto downturn and crypto crash right now. But if we you know, take a step away and think about what decentralized infrastructure means, I think it plays perfectly into this, right? I think a lot of brands, you know, will, will have interesting ways of knowing how to connect that into the current and their current product offerings to, to their customer. And, and in the same way, I also think that, you know, because privacy is a boardroom problem, privacy sort of, you know, impacts everyone in the same way. We're going to see a much stronger cohesion between technology, data, and TED data and marketing, but also X and CX practices, right? Almost I'd argue like if if there were two types of skill sets that as a brand I'd really want to be hiring right now and want to put 
front and center of my business, it, all, it would almost be sort of data scientists and CX researchers, right? Mm-hmm. Put them front and center of, of everything because they're, you know, they're going to be able to tell you, you know, what's going to work for your customers or not. Who is your real customer? Like, do you truly understand your customer is what they want, what they need? What are the adjacencies to that, right? So yeah, like I, I, bottom line is I think the you know, most exciting time that can be in our space and embracing that and then showcasing how you can actually, you know, create value out of that and create like real, you know, impact for businesses and customers out of that. You, you're truly going to succeed in this, in this new world. Hmm. I, I would add, and I know we're wrapping up, but I, I would just add the final point to that. This is such a young space and no one's ever going to get it right. So, so you just put yourself in a position where if you think something is the right direction and you believe in it, then go skill up on that because no one has the exact right answers at the moment. I mean, as an example there, I've been extremely focused since the IAB kind of let me join their, 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 their data tech council. I've been extremely focused on the standards and the interoperability of how people work with data cleanrooms, which you've probably seen just suddenly explode on the market over the past kind of six to 12 months. Everyone's suddenly talking about data clean rooms. So there's an area that anyone listening can go and start to, to start to explore. But, but if I hadn't been focused on going out and saying to everyone, look, there have to be standards around this, then, then, then there wouldn't be any standards being formed for a while yet in Australia. So you've just got to take ownership of this stuff and skill yourself up as well. And, and even I was having this chat with, I don't know if you guys follow him or not, but my, my, Miles Younger, who's, who's one of the smartest people I know in this area as well, over, over at Media Monks in the US. Now, I was talking about how the amount of presentations I've seen around data clean rooms, generally, it all stems from his one master presentation that he did at Programmatic Summit from Ad Exchanger about a year and a half ago. And, and everyone's just pretty much verbatim saying what he's saying but in a different way. And if you don't go out and create your own content or your, your own views on this sort of stuff, then you're never going to skill up and people aren't going to look at you like you know your stuff anyway. So, so that's that, I think that's, that, that's, that's a key point is this is very new, but you could, you could skill up and, and turn it into whatever you want to do as well, Juan. Hmm. I think it's, yeah, I agree. There's a bit of a blank canvas and absolutely aspect to this, which is there is this shift in the industry it's a lot like any shift in any industry or we have any sort of rapidly accelerating innovation, you have a lot of chaos as well, <clears throat> but people who are up for like working in the chaos, you know, I call it sort of fluid intelligence where you're working, you're learning, you're pivoting a lot. I mean, there's, I think there's a tons of great opportunities and I think, you know, overall, I think, there, I think we are, as I said, we are sort of moving into this privacy winter. Maybe it's not a winter, maybe it's a summer, maybe we're going to have a lot of fun, but I think we're heading into perhaps more of an ethical, more nuanced web as well, which I think is again, great for the next generation to think about, well, what is the place of ethics when it comes to the technologies I work on and how I advise my customers and how I actually build solutions for other people to use as well. So I think that overall is a, a positive sum change in the industry, which is great to see. Now, I feel like I've just spent a good hour with the smartest people in the room in, in the privacy space. So Chris, Vishal, thank you so much for your time. Really great insights. But where can we find you on the internet? Uh, uh, if, our, if our website's back up, you can go to civicdata.com.au. So we, we had a slight hiccup yesterday, but I think it's definitely back up. But candidly, all of the good content that we post is if just follow us on our LinkedIn page uh, and you'll find you'll find us both there through LinkedIn. I'm always happy to, 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 to share any thoughts or advice with anyone whatsoever. 
because what comes around goes around. So I've got lots of people I've built relationships with over the years just by just by connecting and, and answering questions for them. So find us on LinkedIn. Um, it's actually fascinating that the, the type of people that follow us from White House policy advisors through to Australian government officials follow follow our LinkedIn page. So it's definitely worth worth following that because we do find some interesting content. Yeah, yeah, fun. and we'll, we'll we'll send you some links for the show notes, you know, on and on our profiles, but also a couple of case studies with some great clients who've been ambitious and already started executing some, you know, really innovative stuff with us. Um, we'll we'll share, we'll share some links to that as well for people to have a read and see, you know, what are the cool things you can do today? Because I, I think I think you know that's definitely worth using as a as a you know, uh, as a point of, hey, this is imaginative and let's go use this and follow this and see what will happen for our business. Great. Well, we'll be regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the MarTech Weekly. People like Chris and Vishal who are at the forefront of the industry. Um, if you'd like to read, subscribe and listen, you can head to the martechweekly.com.